I need to find that clicker. Did you still have that thing? Oh, wait. Somebody slipped into my pocket. Probably me. <laughs> Today we're going to try to do something that is uh, nigh on to impossible. That is, refer. we're going to review the last seven weeks of sermons in now less than 30 minutes. Yeah. Those of you who are regular here know that 30 minutes is a prophetic thought, not actual time. This is prophetic. This is, this is church time. This is preacher time. It's a little different when preachers start telling time. So buckle up. I'll try to deliver as much information as I can on this topic as quickly as I can. If something is confusing to you, please, if something is confusing to you, come to the pastor's class. It's going to be back over there. It's called Second Look. And please raise your hand and say, I didn't get it. That was confusing to me. Okay? Then we'll get a chance to explain some things if we went through them too quickly. Uh, A lot of the folks here have been through this whole series, so some of this is going to just be review for them. But if, if this is the first time and you're kind of going, oh, what did I get myself into? Man, this is the second level. There is no minimum requirement. There will be no test. Okay? But um, except for the preachers. See how fast he can go. So we're ta- we've been talking for several weeks about building foundations. How important are foundations? Um, a, a friend of mine, actually, uh, he passed away a few years ago. He was the, he was the uh, on-site coordinator for the building of this building. He was a, a general contractor. He'd retired uh, some years before. His name was Wendell. Uh, Wendell was, uh, was engaged in building a hospital. It was actually up in, uh, in St. Helena in Deer Park, California. He was engaged in building a piece of that hospital up there. And as he was engaged in this expansion of the hospital, they were getting ready to pour the foundation for it. And if you know, foundation sets the, sets the tone for the rest of the building, right? Building blocks set the tone for the rest of the building. So they're pouring the foundation for this thing. And as they're getting ready to pour, just a couple of days before, as they're setting all the final forms and everything... Stanley Tools visited the site. Stanley Tools gave new uh, tape measures to everyone on the job site. Okay? Some used them. Some didn't. Some used their old tape measure. Some used the new tape measure. So they get the whole thing laid out. They start pouring the cement. And as the cement is going in, and it starts to, to get, you know, near the end. They're getting their last look at it and they're kind of watching it and they're, they're stepping back. And uh, this, this guy, Wendell, the general contractor, is kind of looking at it and he thinks, this does not look right. This building on the plan is square. And these lines don't look right. And he just kept looking at it. And finally, you know, there's tons of cement in this thing by the time they get there. He gets out his tape measure and he goes to one end and he measures it. It's okay. That meets the plan. He goes to the other end and he measures it. And it is several inches out of square. And so he goes, he's still got his original tape measure. He goes and borrows a tape measure from one of the guys who got the new Stanley Tools tape measure. And he lays it out. And he lays his tape alongside of it, and he finds out that Stanley Tools has given them tape measures that are off by a few percentage points. And in about a 200-foot line, that few percentage points put it way out of square. A foundation is a very important thing. 
And getting a foundation squared up is a very significant thing. Uh, Stanley Tools had to pay for uh, fixing the foundation of that building. And they had to recall all of those tape measures from everyone who ever gotten one. A foundation is a very important thing. It is what squares up and supports everything on top. It's what squares up and supports everything on top. So today we're going to talk about a few things. We're going to go through them quickly, as quickly as I can. But we're going to start here. Psalm 127 verse 1 says, Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who built it. Somebody read that with me today? Can we read that together? Ready? Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who built it. One more time. We'll read for this side over here. Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who built it. Unless God is involved in the building of what you're building, you labor in vain in the end. If that's your house, your build, your business, your marriage, your family, the upraising, the raising of your children, the school you're working in, the job you work at, the performance of your day, unless God is behind what's going on, motivating it, setting its parameters, setting those foundations, getting them square, we labor in vain. In the end, it's gone, it's wasted, and it's lost, and you've wasted your time, and you've wasted your one and only life. Pretty big deal. Pretty big deal. Matthew chapter 7 is actually where we started on this a few weeks back. Therefore, everyone who hears the words of Jesus, these words of mine, and puts them into practice, actually does them, is like a man, who wise man, who built his house on a rock. A solid foundation. A solid foundation. So as we start to lay our foundation, we're starting in 1 John chapter 4, verse 8. But anyone who does not love the Lord, does not know God, for God is love. Principle number one. Foundation principle number one. If you don't get this right, everything else gets messed up. You have to start with a recognition, the biblical declaration of the character of God, the biblical declaration of who God is, is that God is love. You can put an equal sign where the is is. Mr. Clinton, you can put an equal sign where the is is. God is love. God equals love. God is love. That's pretty good news for the church. That's pretty good news for the follower of God. Because if God is love, you can expect the outcomes of God's behavior to reflect what God is. Right? Now, that's very important because you have read and read and read things around the Scripture. You've been told things within our culture that says God is something else. God is wrathful. God is angry. God is mean. God is hateful. God is, is un, unfair. You name it, it's been, it's been hung on the character of God. But the biblical description, level one, building block one, cornerstone one, says God is love. And so everything else you read, everything else you study has to align with that. Or the building's going to get wonky and going to get out of measure. It's not going to look right. It's gonna, things are going to go wrong for you. It's not going to, the walls are going to be weird. And people are going to walk in and say, who's building this weird building? It certainly isn't God. Look at it. It's all weird and wonky. It's one of the problems the church has today is God is love and the church is mean. Let's just own it. God is love and the church 
is unpredictable. God is love and the church is unaccepting. It's a tough deal, but we have to own it. Right? <laughs> yeah, we'd like to own it, but we're just not sure what you're trying to talk about. I'm just trying to say God is love and the church is not. And it's not fully to be unexpected because the reality for us is that we're still pretty broken inside. We still react in ways that are broken inside. Now, I know that some of you say, well, if God is love and the church is supposed to be love, then the church has no standard of behavior and has no desire to see... No, no, that's dumb. Stop for a sec. God is love. He doesn't leave you where he finds you. It's like finding a bleeding person in the gutter and say, I love you, and let him bleed. Bad idea. God is love and he comes into your life and makes magnificent transformational differences in your life. That's what the that's what the deal is. Open your arms. Let the let the Lord do His duty. Let the Lord get on His on His job and transform people. But you do your job. Just love them on behalf of Jesus. All right. I don't have time to preach the whole sermon on it, but you get the idea. So here's the other one. Here's the other side. The, the opposite corner. Hebrews chapter one verse three. God is love is number one. Number two, the sun radiates God's own glory and expresses the very character of God. When you look at Jesus in the New Testament, you are looking at God. There's not one God in the Old Testament and a new God in the New Testament. There's not a different approach to mankind in either one. Look, it says the sun radiates God's own glory and expresses the very character of God. So when you see Jesus moving through Nazareth or Capernaum or Jerusalem, you're seeing the the activity, the express image of God, the express character of God in a human being. Important as you look at it because these are the glasses you want to put on then. How do I understand things? How do I look at things? How do I read things? That's why last week we were talking about the fact that God applies law in two different venues. He applies law to the nation of Israel like a national leader must apply law. 100% equally all the time, hitting on all all five cylinders, eight cylinders, nine cylinders, or however many you happen to have. Hitting on all cylinders saying, this is the way it's gotta be. That's the way God sets it up whenever he's dealing with the, with the character in the, with the nation of Israel. But have you noticed when he deals with Abraham and Isaac, when he deals with Jacob, when he, when he real, when he deals with Moses and David, there's a different approach in the individual life. That's why we were talking about this last week. Because if God is love and Jesus is just like God, what do I do when God in the Old Testament swallows up 3,000 people in a gap in the earth? If I have nowhere to put that, I look confused, and I am confused, and I struggle with it. But if you back up the bus a little bit, and you look at the picture in the big scope, you will recognize a big difference in the, in the way God applies the rules, the law, to the nation and the individual. Remember, the New Testament is written off the values of the Old Testament. When Paul is writing in the book of Romans, he's quoting things from the Old Testament scriptures. It's not two different gods. The New Testament is simply an understanding of how God deals with individuals personally. You got it? Big, important, foundational ideas. Romans chapter 6, verse 23. The wages of sin is... Death. The wages of sin is death, 
But the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. I'm going to come back to the second half of this, but I want to get the first half. Prescriptive, descriptive law. Remember talking about that, those of you who have been here? Prescriptive, descriptive law. Prescriptive law is pretty simple. A law that prescribes something. When your doctor gives you a prescription, he's telling you what you're supposed to take, right? If you take your doctor's prescription and go to the pharmacy and you ask for something else, are you going to get something else? Oh yeah, my doctor said that I should have this, but I really would prefer that. No, because this little list here, this little piece of paper prescribes what must be done. That's a prescriptive rule. That's a prescriptive way of looking at things. I told you before, the stop sign's a great way to do it. A stoplight is also just as good. When the stoplight turns red, what are you supposed to do? Stop. What happens if you don't? That depends. Right? Is there a camera in the intersection? You know, 10 years ago, you didn't have to worry about that. The good old days. Is there a policeman nearby? Is there another car in the intersection? You see, you can blow right through a red light and have no consequence. As long as there's no camera, no cop, and no other car. The three C's. No camera, no cop, and no other car. Right? As long as those aren't there, you can write through the law. Because it's simply a prescription of behavior, not a description of law. It's a prescription of law. It's something saying, this is what you're supposed to do. You got that? You can take this thing way too far. I just want you to understand it here in this moment, okay? Prescriptive law is law that prescribes behavior. Um, somebody was telling me after I brought this up before, um, I'm not sure that I can go along with descriptive law having to do with not cutting the edges of your beard and not wearing clothes that are mixed, uh, uh, whatever, cloth, uh, fabric, or what is it, materials. And I told the, and, and after the person said so, I said, I'm going to have to mention that to the church because that's true. I don't see how those are descriptive. Here's why. Because a descriptive law has the punishment built into it. A descriptive law has the punishment built into it. So let's go back to the stoplight. You're pulling up to the stoplight. You don't see anybody coming. There's no cop. There's no camera. So you punch it. And a law of physics suddenly appears in front of you in the size of a bus. What is going to happen? The laws of physics are going to take over. And the punishment of trying, attempting to break a law of physics is going to engage with you. The sudden crash into the side of the bus is going to be all the punishment necessary because two masses cannot occupy the same space. Law of physics, which is a descriptive law, not a prescriptive law. Got it? Okay, I'm going to say it again because it seems to only have gotten about six rows back. Literally, I looked and like people about six rows back were doing this. After that... crickets (laughs) okay listen prescriptive law the stoplight says stop okay you can blow through a stoplight without any harm okay descriptive law describes something that will happen it's not prescribing anything it's simply describing the way the world functions two masses cannot occupy the same space therefore blowing through the stoplight with a car or a bus or a Mack truck in the middle of it will cause a problem for you two masses cannot occupy the same space 
The simpler one is gravity. If you jump off the building, you will not fly. If you were a bird, you could. But you have to obey a different law. But that's not fair. Birds can fly. Oh, there's a whole couple of sermons right in that space. But Gravity will take over and you will fall. Here's the deal. Most of the laws of God are not prescribed. They're described. When God told Israel to go 300 paces outside the camp before they went to the bathroom, He was not prescribing a behavior. He was describing a problem they had no idea existed. And I won't go into that. Ask the person next to you if you're unclear. Descriptive laws have the punishment built into them. If you lie, what is the punishment? People don't trust you anymore. Right? Descriptive laws have the punishment built into them. That's the case with God's laws. That's the case with God. God is attempting to give you a better life by describing the functional process of your life on the planet. All I can say about that, and we're moving on. Oh, wait, before I do. Therefore, the wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is not prescribed to be death. The wages of sin sin simply is death. It's simply what happens. Adam and Eve, if you eat of that tree, you will surely die. It's going to happen. You can complain and say, God should have made a world where it was okay to sin and you wouldn't die. But then you'd have a different God. You'd have an unrighteous and an unjust God. I'm not sure we wanted that either. The wages of sin is death. I'll come back to that concept here in a little bit. Exodus chapter 25, verse 8. One text to describe this massive thing. God seeks relationship with mankind. God made you for relationship. He desires relationship with you. He seeks out relationship. It's Ephesians chapter 25, verse 8. This one, this one simple place. Have the people of Israel, God speaking to Moses. So this is the words of God. This is the voice of God speaking. Have the people of Israel build me a holy sanctuary so I can live among them. God is seeking that connection, seeking that relationship, seeking that engagement. I want you to build a place for me so that I might live among the people. I want to be as close as possible to them. The sanctuary system has a whole bunch of layers in it. In fact, the, the, the one you really need to understand is God puts himself in the back of this tent in a little cubicle to protect man but be as close as possible. To protect man from being consumed as a result of the wages of sin, which we're going to get to in a minute. But he put himself in this little cubicle to be as close as possible because everything has always been personal with God. The relationship has always been personal with God. When he made man, he breathed into him the breath of life. He didn't just speak him into existence. He sought after man in every way possible, including this one. He pursued man. He brought the angel of light and the angels of angels of revelation into their life. He brought prophets to them. He spoke to them. He spoke through them. He worked with man over and over and over again in attempt after attempt after attempt to reach a relationship of connectivity and trust. The trust that was lost in the garden was sought after by God and to be regained. It's the whole story of scripture. He finally shows up in the physiological form of a man so that he might be as close as possible to you and me experience what you experience, experience what I experience, involve himself in what you're involved with, involve himself in all of the struggles and temptations of life on the earth. 
Because it's always been that way for God. It's always been personal with God. It's always been about reconnecting with His children. It's why He calls Himself your Father. It's why He calls you His child. Because it's a personal, connected relationship where He's trying to get you and me to trust Him again. He's trying to get as close as possible. When Jesus left, he said, I have to leave so that I might send you the Holy Spirit. And if you will believe, the Holy Spirit will come on you and dwell in you. Have you ever wondered why the evidence for the New Testament church and the involvement of people, the connection with it, was the indwelling of the Spirit. Have you ever wondered why an, an expression of the presence of the Holy Spirit in someone's life was the evidence that you were a part of the body in the New Testament? Because God is starting something completely new. He's turning a new direction. He's starting a new way of doing this. And as such, the proximity of the personal relationship is the testimony of the reality of the relationship. Did you get that? The proximity of the personal relationship is the testimony of the reality of the relationship. It's what we see when we see someone and we say, wow, that person is, that person is so, so re- much a reflection of Jesus. You just see it in their eyes and their life and the way they go about things and the way they talk. You just see it in them. You're saying the connectedness, the proximity of the relationship is testimony that there is a relationship. You get it? It is what the New Testament church has been built on. I must go so that you might have the kind of personal, proximal relationship, that personal, connected relationship that I've always wanted for you since the garden. I've got to keep going. The clock ever ticks. Connecting back with the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord is the, the fifth text. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 8. God saved you by His grace when you believed. When you did what? Believe. God saved you by His grace when you believed. You are saved by grace through faith. This is the, the one you hear all the time. I'm giving you this one just to change it up so you'll hear it again. God saved you by His grace when you believed. And you can't take credit for this. It's a gift from God. Ever had a gift that somebody made you pay for? No, because it's not a gift, right? Ever had a gift that you sent payments in for? No, because that's not a gift. You ever had a gift that you got that was just really cheap? Somebody gave you their car for a for hundred bucks. You went, man, that was great. Is it a gift? No, it's a bargain. We treat, we treat Christianity like it's a bargain or a payment plan. By the way, if you get a car for 100 bucks, you ought to look carefully under the hood. Just saying. But we treat Christianity, we treat this relationship with Jesus like it's a bargain or a payment plan. You are saved by grace as long as you, and fill in the blank, put anything in that blank you would like. Add anything you want and, you've, and it's no longer a free gift. 
Add anything you want to that and it's not a free gift any longer. It has to be completely free. The text will go, the text does it here, the next verse does it again, trying to, trying to help us understand it's not about you. Because all of us who would get to heaven on our own merit would get there and we would brag about how we got there. And God knew that because he knows us. He says, no, 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 this is not about you. This is about the value of Jesus. This is about the sacrifice of Jesus. And I'm going to trip over that thing eventually. This is about the sacrifice of Jesus. That's the point. You are saved by grace. Because you have faith in Jesus, because you believe, Jesus would say to Nicodemus one night when he came into, came in, in to visit with him, sneaking out, sneaking out to where Jesus was camped so no one could see him, he, Jesus would say to Nicodemus, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes shall have eternal life. Whoever believes. It doesn't change. That's the fact. Foundational pillar. If your foundations are on anything else, you will end up in some form of legalism. Do you understand? If your foundations, if you've added anything, if you fill in that blank with anything, you're in some form of legalism, which is just another way of manipulating God, which is in fact paganism. So there you go. Better move. Separation between God and man for the protection of man must end. Separation between God and man for the protection of man must eventually end. When God dwelt in the presence of Israel in the sanctuary, He went into the back of that little cubicle to protect mankind from His presence. What happened when people wandered in there without being invited? Do you remember? A couple of the sons of the, of the high priest wandered in there, Nadab and Abihu walked in one day. What happened? They were consumed by the presence of God. Moses is up on the mountain one day and he's asking God for God uh, to let him see him. God says, you can't. We'll come to that in a minute. Eventually, the separation between God and man ends. God's home, Revelation 20, this is after the resurrection, after the millennium. God's home is now among his people. He will live with them. God and they, excuse me, and they will be his people and God himself will be with them. There's a separation between God and man put there for the protection of man. So let's look at this one a little further because I just touched on it and we need to see some pieces. Exodus chapter 33. Pastor Tim masterfully took us here a few weeks ago. If you haven't heard the sermon, you should go hear it. Go find it. Moses is up on the mountain. He's having a conversation with God about whether God's going to go with them into the promised land. God says, I'm not coming. You guys are so horrible. And, God, and, and Moses said, if you're not going, we don't want to go. And they go back and forth a little bit. And he's, God says, okay, I'll go. Um, we can discuss God relenting at that point, whether Moses convinces God of anything or not. We can do that in second look class, not now. But there you can ask that question if you'd like. Moses then says, hey, we're up here. We've been hanging out. This consuming fire has been all around me. This has been amazing. I've enjoyed my talk with you. I've enjoyed seeing you write on stone with your finger. I've enjoyed our relationship. I feel really good about how good we are, how close we are. 
Can I see your face? I just want to see you. Just a glimpse. You know, just peek out from behind the curtain or something. I just want to see you. I'd like to see your face. It's, an, it's, a, it's a request of a heart being drawn to God. The ultimate relationship with God constantly moves closer to God. As you spend more time with God, you're constantly moving closer to God. Moses is saying, look, I have, in my life, been so blessed to be so near to you. I mean, we're hanging out together. We are actually talking together like two friends. Can I see your face? Come on. And God says, sorry, buddy. Someday, but not today. Someday, not yet. You'll see my face, but, but not today. But this is the explanation. You cannot see my face, for no man shall see me and what? Live. There's a separation between God and man put there for the protection of man. Okay? So You've you got to understand this, or so much other stuff in the Scripture doesn't make sense. This is why these are foundation ideas. There's a separation between God and man created by God, not because He doesn't like you, but because He does like you. It's a merciful representation of who God is that He separates Himself so that you and I are not destroyed by His very presence. He says, man, you can't see me. Not right now. You can't see me and live because the wages of sin is death. And the arbitration of that death is the very presence of God. The delivery is the presence of God. They, they don't and they can't coexist. So He says... So it shall be when my glory passes by. I love the I love the compromise God comes to. So you know, you're right. This is fun. I'm enjoying hanging out with you too. I enjoy you, Moses. You're you're just a guy I really like. And he says to Moses, You found grace in my eyes. So it shall be while my glory passes by. I'm gonna pass by. That I'll put you in the cleft of a rock, and I will cover you with my hand while I pass by. And it's it's just one of these great stories in scripture. And I found the rock. I showed you pictures of the rock. There's a rock on Mount Sinai with a human-sized hole in it. If it's not the rock, it's a great prop. If it's not the rock, it is a great prop. It's right on the path to the top of Mount Sinai, and it is a giant boulder. It is easily eight or nine feet tall, and there's a seven-foot big giant hole in the middle of this rock. You literally, I have a picture of one of my friends standing in the hole. I'm hoping it's the rock. Such a cool prop if it's not. I'll put you in the cleft of the rock, cover you with my hand, and I'll pass by. Because I'd like to be as close as possible because it's always been personal. It's always been connected. It's always been me wanting to be with you more than you wanting to be with me. Always. Well, that's interesting. I don't know what happened. Maybe that's the out-of-time signal. Here's the point, though. The Scripture says several times, our God is a consuming fire. Our God is love. And He passionately cares about you. And He passionately wants to be, have you back home. But also, our God is a consuming fire. And his very present will destroy sin. Do you get it? It's a big deal. His very presence will destroy sin. 
He loves you so much. He desperately wants you to be home with Him in His presence. And one day we'll be... That's the promise of Revelation chapter 21. We're all going to someday be there with God. But if He brought us there now, it would, it would be our reality that we would be consumed. Understand? We're not the first ones to ask the question. In Isaiah chapter 33, they're talking about the same issue, bigger, bigger section than this little bit that I've given you. It's verses 14 and 15. It's actually like verse 12 to about 17. The question is finally asked, who can live with everlasting flames? You're a consuming fire. How can we possibly live in the middle of a consuming fire? How is that possible? Those who walk righteously. Now, if you have this in place and you don't have, you are saved by grace through faith in place, that's a problem. Where does your righteousness come from? Jesus. The covering of His righteousness. Staying in the relationship with Him where He covers you with His grace. He covers you with His righteousness then you are the one who walks righteously, who can dwell in the midst of a consuming fire without being harmed. What is the not yet? What is it that God's waiting for? For the all who will accept the covering of His grace and the gift of His righteousness to say yes to Him so that He can move fully back into our presence and we can move fully back into His. He can be our God. We can be his children and we can be back home because our sins have been taken away by the sacrifice of God himself. Got it? Okay, big picture stuff. Okay? Again, I'm sorry if you're first week here. Um, Each one of these things has one sermon on it at least. So back to Revelation, it's actually 21.3. God's home is now among His people. He will live with them. They will be His people. God Himself will be with them. And they will dwell in the midst of a God who is a loving, consuming fire and will not be destroyed because of the covering of His righteousness. Puzzle making sense? Okay, last one. When Jesus was on the earth, he makes a couple proclamations about why he came. This is the one that's most encompassing to me. It's John chapter 10, verse 10. It's the second half of the verse. Jesus speaking says, I have come. Now, just as much as Moses talking to God on top of the mountain and God saying, you cannot see my face and live. This is the voice of God speaking. This is Jesus speaking. These are words of God because Jesus and God are one. They are the same. This is the express image of God in human flesh, right? Jesus said, I have come that you may have life and that you might have it more abundantly. The thief does not come except to steal and to kill and destroy. What are the other options? There's only two options here. The thief's life, the thief's experience. He's only come to kill, 
steal, destroy. He's only come to create mayhem. Following anything else is going to cause mayhem and cause ultimate destruction. But I have come that you might have life. Stop there for a sec. That you might have life. Your eternal life weighs in the balance. I have come that you might have life. Not just life on the earth, that's awesome. But life eternal, that's the life. Life eternal, the life I designed you for. I've come that you might have life. And I'll give my life so that you might get yours back. Come that you might have life. And have it more abundantly. I I don't know what's going on, but things are jumping on me. I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. Everybody always asks, What's the point of obedience? What's the point? Once I know I'm saved by grace, what's the point of obedience? Wrong question. Wrong question. Once I have grace, once I'm covered by His righteousness, how do I follow Him better? Right question. Aligning your life with the Scriptures will in fact give you a more abundant life on this smelly little planet that we live on. Aligning your life with the scriptures will give you a more abundant life. I have come that you might have life, ultimate and eternal and the most abundant thing you can imagine and that you can even start having an abundant life here on the planet. That you can even start having an abundant life here on the planet. So here's my, here's my points. Here's the structure of the foundation. Here are the things it's built on. And here is its, its pinnacle for us today. I have come to give you life. Choose life. I wanted to be with you because I love you and it's all personal to me. I want to be connected with you one-on-one, human being to being, God to man. I want to have such a close relationship that we can look at each other in the eye. I want to have such a close relationship that we can talk face to face. Right now, the result of sin has separated us. But that won't be forever. Eventually, that will have to go away. The veil between us must be torn. The veil that separates us must be taken away. The things that keep us apart must go away because one day we will be His people and He will be our God and we will dwell together. And the righteous covering of Jesus is the only answer for that day. And so the question at the end of today is really a question about readiness for that day. The question at the end of today is a simple one. Are you ready for Jesus to come? If he showed up right now, could you say, I am assured by the covering of Christ's blood? that I'm good with Jesus. Could you say, because of Christ's righteousness and the fact that I've accepted it, I'm good with Jesus. Could you say, I have asked my sins to be forgiven and cleansed and washed away, and so I'm good with Jesus. Could you say, I'm holding on to his hand and he's holding on to me, and I'm ready for Jesus to come. Because none of the other things matter. They're just theological, interesting little bits and pieces if we don't get the last thing. It doesn't matter that God's laws are descriptive. So what if I don't choose Jesus? It doesn't matter that God is love if I don't choose that love. 
It doesn't matter unless I make that final decision. So my question for you today is, are you ready? Have you made the decision? Is it yours? I'm going to pray. And as I do, I would like anyone who's not sure to just make it sure. I don't care where you are. Remember? Mickey's hand doesn't apply. Doesn't matter what baggage you came with. Doesn't matter who you used to be. It's who you're going to be that matters. If you choose to follow Jesus, everything changes from this point forward. You can't change what happened yesterday. But you can change what happens tomorrow. I want to call you and challenge you and implore you to choose Jesus to align yourself with the abundance he's trying to give you. And be ready for the day when there's no more separation. There's no more veil. There's nothing between him and I. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I choose you again today. For many of us today, this is, a, this is an again experience. For many of us gathered here this morning, we choose you again. We choose you as our Savior and our Lord. We choose to trust you in the areas where we haven't been trusting you. We choose to follow you all the way home. For some today, this is the first time. For those of us for whom it's the first time, we ask that you would take the sin we recognize is what's breaking up our relationship. That you would forgive what has happened in the past. And that you would set us on a new course today. We too choose you as our Savior and our Lord. Though we're really not sure what that is. We're willing to learn, to follow. We come with a lot of doubts. We come with a lot of unbelief. We come loaded down with things we have questions about. We ask for you to help us with our unbelief. And we choose Jesus today. We choose to be ready for that day when separation between man and God is no more. And we stand in your presence. Righteous because of Jesus. And ready to leave eternally with you. In your name we pray. Amen.